in honor of God's Word. This morning we're going to look at Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. And this is the Palm Sunday text that describes the triumphal entry of Jesus. Now, when they drew near to Bethlehem, or excuse me, I think I got the wrong holiday. <laughs> now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. He brought the donkey and the colts and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches with trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and the crowds that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for this Palm Sunday as we reflect on the triumphal entry of King Jesus. I want to ask you to send your spirit and help us to see the great victory that is before us. Even if it's a mysterious victory, even if it's a paradoxical victory. Help us to see how Jesus conquered nonetheless so that we can follow in his footsteps. And we ask these things confidently in Christ's name. Amen. may be seated. Have you ever thought of how backwards the Christian life must appear to unbelievers? Just about everything that describes the Christian life goes against the grain of this world's philosophy. Consider the Beatitudes found in Luke 6. Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor. Where do you hear that in our world? Answer, nowhere. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who are weak. And then we could look at the flip side with the woes that are pronounced. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Thought that was we were, what we were after. For that is how the prophets spoke of the false prophets. And we could go on and on talking about the many paradoxes of the Christian life. Let me give you a few more. 
A Christian is one who expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another. A Christian is one who empties himself in order to be full. He admits that he is wrong so he can be declared right. He humbles himself in order that he can be exalted. He is strongest when he is the weakest. He dies so he can live. He forsakes in order to have. He rejoices when he's afflicted. He considers himself the greatest when he's the lowliest servant. When he's slapped in the face, he turns the other cheek. When he's forced to go one mile, he volunteers to go the extra mile. When he is asked to give his tunic, he gladly gives up his cloak as well. Now, I could go on and on and on with these paradoxes. But imagine that you're an unbeliever and you're listening to this. The whole Christian way of life seems backwards, upside down, inside out. It doesn't make sense. Is it any wonder that non-Christians are baffled by the Christian life that we talk about week in and week out? However, this is the kicker. The truth is, many of us Christians are also baffled by the paradoxes that we find in the Christian life. And if we're honest, sometimes we hear these paradoxes and we think this doesn't make sense. God's people should be treated differently. Well, we're not the first to struggle with how God has treated His people. Uh, One example comes from Psalm 73. And if you like, you can turn to Psalm 73. And one of the great things about the Psalms is that they are dripping with honesty. As a matter of fact, I often read through the Psalms and I think, boy, I wish we could be this honest. And one of the reasons why we have the Psalms is so that we can be honest when we're talking to God. When we're not doing well, we can be honest and say, Lord, I'm not doing well. We can be honest and say, Lord, I'm not happy with how my life is going. And we can be honest and say, this doesn't make sense. When Jesus was going through the most difficult time of His life, when He was on the cross, He turned to the Psalms and He said, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Think about that. What honesty. The Son of Man asking God why. Which I take great heart because if you've asked why, like I've asked why, you can know that even the Son of God asked why on one occasion. Psalm 73 is written by Asaph. Asaph is basically a worship leader. And he talks about a time of his struggle and he's very honest. In verse 2, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And he's using this analogy to describe his spiritual life. And then in verse 3, he says, For I was envious of the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph is basically saying, this isn't right. Look at these wicked people. They blaspheme God. They deny God. And yet, they're wealthy. And sometimes I turn and I look at God's people and they're faithfully serving Him, living godly and upright lives. And they're unemployed. And they're struggling just to pay the bills. This doesn't make sense. And he was greatly bothered by this. 
In verse 12, he said, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And then he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. It was all for nothing. There's no reward in it from God. And then he goes on in 14, he says, For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. In other words, he's just agonized by this. He he can't figure it out. He's not going to tell anybody about it because he's afraid that it might affect other people. So he's quiet about it. He just struggles within himself. Day in and day out, because of how he sees God working in the world, it doesn't make sense to him. Verse 17, Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And here's one of these places where I wish we had two or three extra verses. Until I went to the sanctuary of God. Until I went to church. And I heard the singing of the hymns. Until I heard the preaching of of God's Word. Then God spoke to me. I had clarity of thought and I saw I really misunderstood what God was doing. We don't know exactly what happened, but we know that something happened in the sanctuary and He says concerning the wicked, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places and make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by utter terrors. In other words, what happened to Asaph when he went to the sanctuary? He got an eternal perspective. And he realized these wicked people who are growing financially, who I've envied, why am I envying them? Because it's going to be gone that fast and judgment is going to come upon them. What a fool I have been to envy these people. And at the end of the psalm, it's great because he says, Who have I in heaven but you? And in earth there is nothing besides you. He realizes actually... I was blessed all along, but I couldn't see it. Because while I didn't have riches, I had something much better. I had God Himself. And this is just a reminder to us that we need God. We need to return to church. We need to return to His Word. We need to return to His people. Because often we're like the psalmist. We we get our perspective off and we need God to bring us back. And we say, yes, I know it's paradoxical. I know it's baffling. I know my ways seem mysterious. But they do make sense, at least to a certain point, if you can get clarity. This morning I want us to look at another paradox. And the paradox we're looking at this morning is the gentle triumph of King Jesus. Now, I don't know what the heading in your Bible says, but in Matthew 21, the heading of my Bible says, The Triumphal Entry. Isn't that a great title? The Triumphal Entry. And I think you've got to say it like that with your fist in the air. The Triumphal Entry of King Jesus. But I ask you, does this really look like a triumphal entry? If we were asked the first century disciples, as you look at Jesus riding into town on this donkey, do you see a magnificent triumph 
taking place? Is Jesus doing what you expected Him to do? And their answer would have been, no, hardly. And I don't know where we got this title, The Triumphal Entry. I think it's been a part of the church for a long time. But I know where we didn't get it from. We didn't get it from the original disciples. They did not view this as a triumph. They viewed this as an utter failure. What were the first century disciples hoping that Jesus would do when he rode into Jerusalem? Anybody want to tell me? That's right. Take over the throne. Overthrow the Romans. Set up his throne. So once again, Israel could be the head of the nation. They could be the head and not the tail. They could be in charge and not be slaves. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't come in on a war horse. He didn't come in waving his sword. He didn't come in with thousands of soldiers following in his wake behind him. He rode in gently on a beast of burden. And, as we'll see in a moment, he did conquer, though, in due time. But not how his disciples thought he would. Now, we need to talk about this gentleness for a moment because it's misunderstood. Let me clarify that gentleness or meekness in some translations is not weakness. It doesn't mean spinelessness. It doesn't mean a lack of conviction or courage because it most certainly does. And let's also realize that you can be gentle on the one hand and also be zealous on the other hand. Going ahead a little further in Matthew 21, we do see Jesus getting fired up and he goes into the temple and he doesn't like what's taking place. And he puts together a whip, as other passages tell us, and he drives out the money changers. He overthrows the tables. He flips them over. If I was to stand up here this morning and go up to the communion table and and flip over the table, I don't think he would say, boy, Wayne is so gentle this morning. (laughs) I think he'd be saying, what has got into him? So you can be gentle and you can be zealous. So by saying Jesus is gentle, I'm not saying that's all He is. That isn't. There's a time to be gentle and a time to be zealous. And Jesus was sometimes gentle and sometimes zealous. And this is where we get confused sometimes because sometimes we're zealous when we should be gentle and gentle when we should be zealous. Sometimes we're we're very zealous when it comes to confronting the sins of others. We sense a lot of righteous indignation. How dare they offend me? But when we sin, have you noticed this? Maybe it's just true of me, but maybe it's true of some of you. Have you noticed that when we sin, we're very gentle on ourselves? Lord, you know I didn't want to do that. I know it wasn't right, but when we come up with all our sins. We're very gentle on ourselves. If, if our name is defamed, we're, we're very jealous. We rise up and we're self-defensive. But how about if, if God's name is at stake or someone else's name is at stake in gossip? Are we equally as zealous or are we gentle because we don't, we don't want to be offensive? We've we got to get this right. There's a time to be gentle and a time to be zealous. So as I talk about gentleness this morning... Don't misunderstand me as saying that we're always to be gentle. We're not always to be gentle. 
Sometimes we're to be zealous. Sometimes we're to be firm. And there is a place for righteous indignation. So if gentleness isn't weakness, what is it? It is power under control. Power under control. And think of an environment where there's a a heated argument taking place. Gentleness in that situation is, is power under control. Instead of you also rising to the situation and getting upset and raising your voice and getting ready to bring down the hammer, you have strength so you exercise control so you can be gentle in that situation. That is not weakness. And many of us who have lost our tempers will admit later the problem was I wasn't strong enough to be gentle and to control myself. So gentleness is power under control. And we need to understand this gentleness. Because gentleness is one of the weapons that we wield in our arsenal to conquer the world. And I do hope you know that the objective is to conquer the world. If you were here last week, we talked about the Great Commission. And Jesus told His disciples before He ascended into heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. But very simply, take over the world by discipling them. And one of the ways in which we do that is with gentleness. Not with rage, not with anger, with gentleness. St. Augustine put it this way, The devil and his angels are the enemies against whom the church fights. And how does she fight? With gentleness. For our king himself conquered the devil with gentleness. The devil was the one in a rage. Christ was the one who was suffering. The one in a rage was conquered. The conqueror was the one who suffered. That is the gentleness with which the body of Christ, that is the church, conquers her enemies. What a great word. The devil and his adversaries are the ones that are in a rage. King Jesus and us Christians, we are the ones that are to be gentle. And in the triumphal entry of King Jesus, we're going to see Him bring about victory through gentleness. Now, before I go on, let me point out a connection that St. Augustine made that's very important. Notice how he made a connection with gentleness and suffering. You might be thinking, well, if I'm gentle too much, I might get trampled on. I might suffer. Let me just tell you right up front. Yes, you might. And at times, you should suffer gladly and willingly. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul told the Corinthians, you should not be taking one another to court as Christians. Allow yourself to be wronged for the sake of God's reputation. Allow yourself to endure an injustice. So yes, if we're gentle, will people take advantage of us? Yes, we might as well realize that right up front. Jesus suffered. Should we expect anything less? 
Now, in the triumphal entry, in verse 4, we're told that prophecy is being fulfilled. And this is the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. And we read, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble, or some translations have, gentle and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. But we don't want to stop just at the fulfillment of prophecy. We want to look at the context of Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. So let me give you this verse in context and to realize that you need to bring the Old Testament context into the New Testament context. I'll talk about that more in a moment. But here's the context. and This is very important. This is Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there's our verse that's quoted right here. But then notice the next verse. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bull shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. So notice very clearly, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, humbly, gently, but his goal nonetheless is to establish his rule and take over the world so that he reigns from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's why King Jesus is riding into town to establish his throne, to establish his kingdom. Now, here's where we have to pause for a moment and say, okay, I see Jesus riding into Jerusalem. I see that he's ready to take over the throne. But then I don't see that coming to fruition. I see him being taken captive and I see him suffering and dying. Yes. But like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter, Jesus conquered sin, death, in the devil. We may not see this as a victory at first, but this is a victory. It's not a hostile victory. It's a gentle victory. And this is important for us because we're to follow in Jesus' footsteps. So we are to take over the world. And let me say that's not an exaggeration. Think of Matthew 5, 5. Another beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. The meek, the gentle, will inherit the earth. That's very important. That means that through gentleness, through meekness, we conquer the world. Now, of course, the world knows nothing of this weapon that we wield. This world only understands the power of the military. Tanks, 
nuclear weapons, right? Bombs. That's what this world understands. Or the power of money. The world understands that, right? What's, what's the world's golden rule? The one with the most gold rules, right? And the world also understands the power of government, right? That's why everybody gets so worked up over elections. Because that's power. And I think we Christians have to be careful. Sometimes we can think that's where the real power lies in Washington, D.C. or at this Capitol. We need to be careful. And of course, the world understands the power of violence. And if you can't get what you want through office, then you get a mob together. And if you can get thousands and thousands of people together, you can get practically anything you want through the power of violence. But ours is the power of gentleness and the Gospel. And we follow in Jesus' footsteps and we go forth into the nations. We go forth into Mexico. We go forth into Guatemala, South Korea, North Korea, Johnsburg, McHenry, Fox Lake. And we go with the Gospel preaching God's love for the world and that He loved the world so much that He gave His one and only sin who willingly died on the cross in place of their sin. And then on the third day, He raised Him from the dead. And now He's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ruling over the nations. And we tell them, and if you bow before King Jesus, He will have mercy on your soul. He will forgive you. And you too will be saved and inherit heaven and earth. And if they should say, what if we don't listen to you? What if we come against you with the sword? What will you do? Will you fight back? Our response will be, no. We will not fight back. We have come in gentleness. We have come in submission. We have not come with swords. We have not come with guns. We have not come with tanks. We've come with gentleness and the power of the gospel. And even if you should kill us, we will not fight back. Because even then, we know that God will use us. Even then, we know that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we know that as we go forth gently, one step at a time, in God's due time, we will inherit the earth. That is the promise that has been given to us. Now, I want you to notice something else with uh, the Beatitude of Matthew 5.5. 5. Most commentators know that Jesus is quoting from Psalm 37.11. So, I'd like you to turn to that. Psalm 37.11. Now, while you're turning there, let me just remind you that... Everybody, I hope everybody, understands that you're to interpret a passage in light of its context. But here's something that often gets overlooked. When you have an Old Testament passage quoted in the New Testament, you have to interpret it not only in light of the New Testament context, but also in light of the Old Testament context. Realize that when the authors in the New Testament take a passage from the Old Testament, they're not ripping it out of context. 
They're not saying, wow, that, that's a nice phrase. I think I'll plug it in right here. But now it has nothing to do with the Old Testament context. It does. And that's very important. And actually, that, that will bring a lot to bear on your Bible study when you realize that. And I already gave you one example with Zechariah 9.9. We looked at the verse that's quoted directly in Matthew 21. But then we also looked just briefly at the broader context. And we saw that indeed Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey has to do with stopping war, establishing peace, and establishing the rule of Jesus Christ. We can't just rip it out of context. Do any of you like to be taken out of context if you say something? I don't think any of us like that. Neither do the Old Testament writers. What they said, we have to understand in context. And that whole context comes into play. Unfortunately, what happens is we don't know the context. So we just stick with the verse. But if we were Jews and we were thoroughly entrenched in the Old Testament, we would understand the context. For example, just imagine this afternoon you were watching the news and, and someone says, our next story is a nice story. It's going to be about a good Samaritan. Well, you would hear that good Samaritan and you would think, Hopefully, oh yes, I remember the parable that Jesus talked about. A man who was on the road and he was beat up and he was mobbed and the Levite passed by and the rabbi passed by. But a good Samaritan came by and bandaged him up and put him on his horse and brought him to the inn and paid for whatever had to be paid for and took care of him. See, you would bring, because you know the story, you would bring all that context to bear on that statement. And that's what should happen when you... Read of an Old Testament quote in the New Testament. If you don't know that, then what you have to do is go back to that passage and find out what the context was. And that's what I want to do with the simple beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's a quote from Psalm 37, 11. So let's look at the context. It's a Psalm of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land. See the context? There's a battle going on. There's evildoers. They're prospering. But delight yourself in the Lord. Keep your trust in God. Wait patiently. Don't get angry. Because the meek gentle will inherit the land. Very simply, the meek will triumph over their enemies because God will give them the victory. 
Now, I've been talking about conquering here, but maybe to be more accurate, I should talk about inheriting. Because the passage doesn't say, Blessed are the meek, for they shall conquer the world. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the world. And if they're going to inherit the world, then the question is, well, who will they inherit the world from? Obviously, the owner. Who is the owner of the world? King Jesus, God. Exactly. The meek will inherit the earth because God will give it to them as an inheritance. So as we're meek, as we go forth with the gospel, we can be assured that in due time, in God's time, the world eventually will be ours. Jesus conquered with gentleness. We also will conquer with gentleness when the time is right. Now, I don't want to leave this idea of gentleness up here in the abstract. I'm giving you the, the big picture. The meek, the gentle will inherit the earth. But how does this look day in and day out? Let me give you a few examples. First Peter 3. First Peter 3. Beginning at verse 1. Likewise, wives. And as soon as you hear likewise, you have to say, like what? So let me back you up a little bit. The previous chapter, verse 22, speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep and have now turned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives. In other words, the likewise is likewise like Jesus when he is wronged, when he is reviled, when he has suffered. Don't repay evil with evil, but entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word because they're an unbeliever, or because they're a Christian living in rebellion against God, even if they do not obey the Word, they may be won over. Let me give you another word to encourage you wives. They may be conquered. (laughs) Or they may be triumphed over without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothes. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. What is Peter saying? Wives, you have a weapon at your disposal for your godless or unbelieving husband. And the weapon is quietness 
and gentleness. And that's so paradoxical, right? Because you think when you have a stubborn husband, like my husband, (laughs) something you're thinking, you don't understand, you've got to get louder. You've got to get firmer. Let me ask you in the words of Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? (laughs) Is it working? Is he being won over? doesn't work. Because that's not what God uses. You think, well, he doesn't hear me. Because you're speaking too loudly. If you were to talk quietly, softly, he could probably hear you a little better. And you may be amazed at the response that you would get. You can conquer your husband. You can win him without a word. Just by being gentle and quiet. And again, this is hard because it's paradoxical. It's not the way of the world. Look at another example from 1 Peter 3.15. Had just a little more. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Be ready. When someone says, why do you believe that? Be, be ready. Have an answer. Verse 16, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Do it with gentleness and respect. Don't say, I can't believe you can't understand that. The evidence is so clear. The evidence is so compelling. If you were just a thinking person, you would understand gentleness and respect. And I think we need to remember that we're not trying to win an argument. We're trying to win a person. And you can win the arguments and lose the person. One of my professors in college mentioned that on one one occasion he was talking to a friend of his and his friend said, you will always know more than me, but you will never win me over. And he admitted that the approach that he had towards his friend was all wrong. And because he wasn't gentle, because he wasn't respectful, while he won the argument, because he was smart, he was one of these brilliant guys, he didn't win the person. And it's all because of the approach. The approach is so important. Second Timothy 2.24 talks about this as well. Second Timothy 2.24 And the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may escape the snare of the devil after being captured to do his will. I can still remember my my second year of Greek at Moody, um, our class was basically um, exegeting Second uh, Timothy, just verse by verse. And I, and I can remember coming to this verse right here, and my good friend who was sitting next to me asked this question. He said, well, what if we don't do it with gentleness? And I remember thinking, well, God is sometimes gracious, and, and He may use it in spite of ourselves, but it seems from this verse right here that what God uses in correcting others is primarily gentleness. 
And I don't, I don't know why he asked that question, but, but that has always stuck with me. Those who oppose you gently instruct. And of course, we should be gentle because is the convincing ultimately up to us. See, and this is where our theology is very important. And here's where we have to believe in the sovereignty of God. Because if we don't, and we do think it's up to us, then, then we ratchet it up a little bit. If we get it in our minds, no, I, I can convince them. I really can convince them. And we think, if I just come at them, come at them, give another argument, just bombard them with all these arguments, I'll win them over. What does this verse say? Be gentle that God may perhaps bring repentance. Our job is to be gentle and respectful, give an answer, praying and hoping that God opens their eyes so that they will see what's going on. We can't open their eyes. Only God can do that. So we might as well be gentle. And consider one, one more example. Galatians 6.1 Brothers, is anyone caught in any transgression? You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. Let me ask you this question. If you were caught in the middle of a sin, would you want someone to bring down the hammer on you or would you want someone to be gentle to you? Remember the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery? Was dragged before Jesus and I imagine her being thrown down at His feet? Was Jesus gentle or did He lower the boom with that woman? Very gentle. Didn't overlook her sin. Didn't overlook her sin but it was very gentle with her. And when you're caught in a sin, and when I'm caught in a sin, we want to be treated with gentleness. And Paul says here, if you're the one who catches someone in a sin, if you're spiritual, do it with gentleness. And and I like what Doug Wilson says here. He says, if you want to discipline someone because of their sin, you're probably not right in the frame of mind. If you don't want to discipline someone, you're probably the right person for the job. <laughs> See what he's saying? If you're in a state and you're like, yeah, let me get them, you know. You know, I come home and Michelle tells me, you know, you're not going to believe what your boys did. And if I'm in a state, let me at them, you know. <laughs> you know, boys, come in, you know. <laughs> if I'm really ready to go, I'm not in the right position. But if I'm like, oh, no, that's... That's not what I want to do when I come home. Um, then, then I'm in the right state. When you don't want to discipline, when, when you don't want to confront someone, then, then you're in the right state. Well, what happens if you have to confront but you're in the wrong state? Well, maybe you have to cool down a little bit. Everybody has different personalities and, and maybe you have to say, you know, maybe you got to grab something. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and you say, okay, i got to get a hold of myself first. Because if I call the boys in here, it's, it's not gonna it's not gonna go well. So I got to get under control, and and then we can go ahead. And, and obviously we we could go on and on and on, but that's just a few examples to help us to see that this is how we live the Christian life. This is how we go forth advancing the kingdom. We we do it with gentleness, and and it's hard to do it 
in a world that's so hard and cruel. And, and the harder the world is, the more cruel and mean the world is, the harder it is to be gentle. And, and if you're sitting there right now saying to yourself, yeah, I need to be more gentle. I, I need to be more gentle. Pastor, you're right. I need to be more gentle. I'm going to resolve today to be gentle. Let me put you at ease. You can't do it. <laughs> Let me encourage you. You can't do it. So that, that's not very encouraging. I need to be more gentle and you're telling me I can't do it. You can't do it in and of yourselves. If you're hearing this message as an exhortation to try harder, you're, you're missing the points. Maybe what we need to see is, you know what, this goes against my personality. Again, everyone has different personalities, different dispositions. People come from different homes. Maybe you need to see, you, you can't do it in and of yourselves. We need God's help. It's one of the reasons why we have the Holy Spirit. So He can bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, right? Which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Anybody? Gentleness and self-control. This is a fruit of the Spirit, not a fruit of the flesh. This is something that God produces in our lives. So that if we need this, let us turn to God. Let's say, God, help me. If I'm going to be a gentle person, if this is going to be a characteristic in my life, I need your help. And it helps to focus on Jesus, who was gentle. Remember Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give rest for your souls, for I am gentle and humble in heart. In Sunday school, we've been talking about beholding the glory of the Lord. And we can behold His gentle glory. And as we behold gentle Jesus, we will admire that and we will be like Him. And then just one other, one other help is to consider the golden rule. The biblical golden rule, which I hope you know it. Do unto others as you would have them what? do unto you. I can still remember when I was uh, in college, in one of my classes, uh, the students all had to do a devotional. And one of the girls in the class did her devotional on gentleness. And she talked about the fruit of the Spirit. And she said, a lot of people focus on the fruit of the Spirit and the love that comes from the fruit of the Spirit and, and the joy that comes and the self-control that comes. But very few people focus on gentleness. And she said one of the choir directors at the college was a very gentle person. And, and she asked this gentleman how it was that he was so gentle. And he, and he said, well, I just try to treat other people like I would like to be treated. And sometimes it, it's that simple. With the help of God and His Spirit, if, if we could just treat others like we would like to be treated, we, we would find ourselves naturally being more gentle and kind, and loving, and patient. We could go right on down the list. But gentleness. If we could just view them as brother and sister in Christ, made in the image of God, and just think, how, how would I want someone to treat me in this situation? Could change how we would, how we would approach them. That was Jesus. His whole, his whole ministry. And think of it, he had, he had ultimate power. If, any, if anyone said anything against Jesus, he could have just lifted up his hand. And he could have said, you see this hand? <laughs> this is an omnipotent hand right here. All the power of God Almighty resides in this hand. 
I could wipe you off the face of this earth. Just swipe of my hand. But he didn't do that. Yes, he was firm on occasion, like to the Pharisees. You brood of vipers, you hypocrites, you whitewashed sepulchers. He was firm at times, but vast majority of the time, dealing with people gently. And what it is gentleness caused him? Caused him to be arrested, to be bound up, to be flocked, whipped, spit upon, to die ultimately on a cross. Didn't even open his mouth. Didn't even open his mouth when people spoke out against him. But gentle Jesus gave us the ultimate paradox when he conquered Satan, death, and sin by becoming a loser on the cross. But of course, that's the world's perspective, right? We know that he really didn't lose when he died on the cross. He actually brought about the greatest victory ever. But it was so paradoxical that the world couldn't see it. And many in the world today still can't see it. We glory in the cross. We're going to gather together on Good Friday. We glory in the cross. We boast in the cross. The world still in many places sees the cross of Jesus Christ as an utter failure, as an utter foolish message. But to us, it's victory. It's glory. It's the power of God. Even if it's so paradoxical that the world can't understand it. But that's our victory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of gentle Jesus Christ. Father, we ask you to help us to walk in his footsteps so that we too can be victorious. Father, would you strengthen us so that we can be strong enough to be gentle. Father, we need your help. This is not something that comes to us naturally. It's something that comes to us supernaturally. So may your Spirit work mightily in us so that we can follow in Jesus' footsteps. And we ask this in his name for his sake. Amen.